In the early 1900s, the region now known today as Israel was controlled by the Ottoman Empire. The Arabs there began slowly creating a national identity called the Palestinians. As that was happening, a growing number of Jews began moving in this area as part of the Zionist movement. Now, because of anti-Semitic attacks towards Jews, Zionism rose in Europe, and it was essentially letting Jews know, hey, we stand in solidarity with you. Also, they would be able to have their own land where they wouldn't have to endure that vitriol and hatred. After World War I, the Ottoman Empire fell apart and was divided into regions. So, British would control a region now known today as Mandatory Palestine, and Jewish immigrants continued arriving there. But the global peace was only short-lived. Dictators, fascists, extremists, racists all began to rise all over the world. One of the ruthless, vicious, and diabolical ones was Adolf Hitler. During his time as dictator, six million Jews would ultimately be rounded up and burned to death. That was mass genocide during World War II in Germany, which would become known as the Holocaust. After World War II, the United Nations was created in 1945 to bring some peace and stability to the international community. So President Harry Truman traveled to San Francisco and delivered a speech at the United Nations headquarters. And immediately, this organization began playing an integral role in international matters. After the Holocaust, Jews really did want their own land. I mean, they were still trying to find places to live where they weren't subjected to anti-Semitism. So in 1947, the British left and the UN created a partition plan that split mandatory Palestine into three different regions. A place for the Arabs, then the Jews, and the holy city of Jerusalem would be a special international zone that no one owned. As this was happening, there was a lot of tension between the Arabs and Jews, including violence. But it was the rising tension in Palestine that held world attention. Partition had brought a new flare-up in the strife between Arab and Jew. Politically, the conflict appeared to be settled. In actual fact, it had only just begun. The United Nations Special Committee had advocated separate Jewish and Arab states as the uneasy compromise. The plan was accepted by 33 votes to 13. Alexander Kadagan, Britain's representative, abstained. Prince Faisal of Saudi Arabia headed the Arab country's opposition. The Jewish state will include the ports of Haifa and Tel Aviv and the whole of the Negev Valley. The Arab will occupy the fertile eastern part. Jerusalem will come under United Nations trusteeship. First reaction from the Jews was one of joy. Crowds gathered in the streets and greeted the birth of their state with traditional dances. Britain's civic administration is expected to withdraw by May. Jews and Arabs will then govern themselves. Arab opposition to the partition scheme has been violent. The call for a holy war against the Jews went out from One particular gruesome event was the massacre of Deir Yesen. That's when far-right Jewish forces systematically executed 107 Palestinians living in a village, including women and children. And that massacre started the huge deportation of Palestinians, while Jews, while Jewish immigration essentially soared. The Arabs were becoming very infuriated by what was happening to them. They were being removed from their own land and replaced by people who didn't own it. Also, constant atrocities were happening, as the promise of an independent Arab state was basically dying. When Israel declared its independence on May 14, 1948, that was the tipping point, and violence broke out. During this war, Arab forces were joined in combat by Lebanese, Syrians, Iraqis, Egyptians, and Jordans. For contacts, the Arab League was then formed to protest. Upon hearing the news, the United Nations then proposed a four-week ceasefire which favored Israel. 
Despite the unwavering support, Israel imported heavy armaments from Czechoslovakia and used them to reorganize. When the ceasefire was over, Israel launched a counteroffensive occupying two strategic Arab towns which were allocated to Arab Palestine by the United Nations. As a result of this violent counterattack, 70,000 Palestinians who lived there were forced to immediately leave their homes. The Israelis made further entrance and occupied Palestinian regions. In terms of defense, the Arab armies were reportedly not as effective as they were during the first round of fighting. This is from one recounting, quote, There was little coordination and virtually no cooperation, end quote. So, things were not going well. The Arab states controlled by Egypt basically respond to this by creating a Gaza-based Palestinian government, while tensions and fights were growing among some Arabs about how to respond, Israel was growing more powerful, and Egypt became a target. That's when they started requesting some assistance from their Arab allies. A.B. Shalom um, said that either the Arab states were afraid to intervene or did not wish to intervene. Ultimately, the Egyptians were defeated and the Israelis emerged victorious and took more land to bolster their national defense. 70,000 Palestinians were forced to flee their home, and the UN's two-state resolution failed. Although it violated the partrician plan, they persisted, conquering all of Palestine but left one region known as Gaza. As a result, this caused a Palestinian refugee crisis. They had been removed from the homeland, and it was just a catastrophe. But just 19 years later, in 1967, there was another way. This one was called the Six-Day War. Israel again won and took more land for themselves. 11 years later, in 1978, the U.S. was like, all right, we need to do something about this. This violence cannot continue, so let's try peace negotiations. President Jimmy Carter, while he was successful in getting an agreement between the nations, it did not address the rights of Palestinians to self-govern, and it stayed that way for a long time. Because land was given back, this became really controversial in the Arab region, which led to the assassination of the Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat. As years passed, some Arab states began making peace with Israel, even if a treaty wasn't signed. But even though Israel gave up some land, they got more power over the land that they already controlled. They built settlements in the West Bank of Gaza, causing more disruption in the lives of Palestinians. And this is where the Israel-Palestinian conflict got a thousand times worse. The PLO, or the Palestinian Liberation Organization, was formed in the late 1970s with the help of Israel. I know, shocking. Hamas is an Arabic synonym that stands for Islamic Resistance Movement, which would not really exist today if it weren't for Israel's backing. You see, back in the late 1970s, the formation of Hamas, with financial support and a clear backing, Hamas was essentially a creation of Israel. Uh, this is from The Intercept. This is their report by Mehdi Hassan on how Israel created Hamas and the blowback that it's caused them. Powering Sheikh Yassin and the Muslim Brotherhood, Israeli leaders thought they could divide and rule the occupied Palestinians, play them off against each other, secular nationalists against religious Islamists. So in 1978, when Yassin wanted to officially register his Islamic Association, which was basically the precursor to Hamas, 
the Israelis were only too keen to help. Yassin built and grew a network of Islamist social institutions across Gaza, including schools and clubs and mosques, and Israel helped fund some of those projects. Most American politicians have no clue about any of this, although the former Republican Congressman Ron Paul once made this point on the floor of the House. Hamas was encouraged and really started by Israel because they wanted Hamas to counteract Yasser Arafat. Arafat himself told an Italian newspaper, quote, Hamas is a creature of Israel. He even claimed that former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin admitted as much to him, calling it a fatal error. Now, you might be wondering, why should I believe mad Ron Paul or the famously shady Yasser Arafat? Well, you don't have to. You can believe top Israeli and US officials who've basically owned up to all this. Brigadier Yitzhak Segev, for example, who was the Israeli military governor in Gaza and later told a New York Times reporter that he helped finance the Islamic movement. The Israeli government gave me a budget, he said, and the military government gives to the mosques. Colonel David Hakam, who worked in Gaza in the late 1980s as an Arab affairs expert in the Israeli military, has admitted that the original sin was Israeli support for Yassin in the late 70s. But at the time, he has argued, nobody thought about the possible results. Well, Avner Cohen did. Cohen was the Israeli official who was responsible for religious affairs in Gaza for more than two decades, and who now says, quote, Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation. Yeah. Cohen's words. He actually wrote an official report to his superiors in the mid-1980s, warning them not to play divide and rule in the occupied territories and calling on Israel to, quote, break up this monster before this reality jumps in our face. Quote, break up this monster before the reality jumps in our face, end quote. Really strong words there, a stark warning that was ignored and has caused danger, destruction, and chaos for decades. No one listened, and now the monster that Israel created is retaliating against them after they tried to destroy them. In just the past decade alone, Israel and Hamas have gone to war multiple times, namely in 2009, 2012, 2014, 2021, and of course this year, 2023. In 1982, there was an Israeli invasion of Lebanon. Through it all, ABC News was there. Watch now the original ABC News broadcast of a great TV news story. Israel versus the PLO. Attacking Syrian missiles positioned in the Beka Valley. Good evening. The stillness of the ceasefire in southern Lebanon was shattered today by the sound of guns, bombs, and planes. Peter Jennings is at our foreign desk in London. Peter? Frank, this afternoon the Israeli Air Force attacked a variety of targets in Lebanon. It wasn't the massive raid which much of the world has been expecting and which the United States has been trying to prevent. It was, however, an attack with major political implications. In the first of two reports, here is ABC Jacques Grenier in Beirut. The Israeli jets flew over Lebanon for about two hours, concentrating their attacks on four Palestinian positions. The Palestinians responded with anti-aircraft guns and heat-seeking surface-to-air missiles. But the planes were too high for the guns and dropped decoy flares to attract the missiles. Lebanese radio said the Israeli bombs and rockets killed at least 25 people. Many more were wounded. 
Ambulances carried the casualties to Beirut, about 10 miles from the most intensive bombing. The rockets and bombs fell, for the most part, on Palestinian military positions. Reporters were kept away. The raids put to rest the American-negotiated ceasefire between Israel and the Palestinians, which has held tenuously for the past nine months. Palestinian spokesman tonight made that very clear. Everybody uh, around the world knows that this is a clear provocation and it's a, a, a violation and a breaching to the ceasefire which was agreed upon. For several weeks now, Palestinian leaders have been predicting that Israel will invade southern Lebanon. Any retaliation by the Palestinians for today's air raids could provoke that very invasion. Jacques Grenier, ABC News, Beirut. Continued, Jewish settlers began moving into Palestinian territories, whether they were asked to or not. Most were moving in part because of, you know, the religion, politics to claim land, and also less expensive housing. Uh, this, again, caused Palestinians to leave their land whether they liked it or not, as Israeli soldiers occupied most of those areas. This eventually reached a tipping point in 1987, and there was an intifada, which is the Arabic word for uprising. Protests and boycotts turned violent, and Israel reacted with um, heavy military force. Ultimately, a couple hundreds of Israelis and more than a thousand Palestinians had died during the first intifada, which ended in 1993. It was just a year earlier in 1992 that Norway offered to serve as a host for Israel and the PLO to negotiate. So they went to Oslo, Norway, where they could talk on for many months. In September of 1993, the U.S. tried again at brokering a peace deal among these nations. This attempt was called the Oslo Accords, which was created to craft a partnership on borders, governance, and a peaceful future. So that fall, the PLO, Israel, and Russia officially signed the Oslo Accords during a ceremony at the White House. Term 1 uh, was Israel, you must accept the PLO as the representatives of the Palestinians. Also, the PLO would have to officially reject terrorism and recognize Israel as a country. According to the History Channel, both sides agreed that for five years, a Palestinian authority would be created to govern the Palestinian territories of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Two years later, in 1995, they came back to D.C. to sign Oslo II. Israeli forces would agree to withdraw from their occupation of Palestinian regions. Also, the West Bank would be divided into three different regions. One would be under Palestinian control, another where Palestinians have civilian control and Israelis controlled security, and the last area would be completely controlled by Israel. As this was happening, many of many of them on both sides, uh, resorted to violence as a refusal to accept these new terms. In November of 1995, an anti-Palestinian Israeli extremist assassinated the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. He was assassinated at a peace rally because the Prime Minister was in those peace talks and supporting them. Apparently, he did not want that. So that's how intense and controversial this issue was, even among Israeli citizens. Very soon, it became clear that the Oslo Accords just weren't going to work. And so that whole thing just fell apart. There were suicide bombings and more infuriation, which reached another tipping point, causing the second intifada. Reportedly, these two intifadas led to more than 5,000 Palestinians dying and 1,400 Israelis. 
In 2005, when this violence finally ended for the second time, Israel left Gaza, but set up a blockade. This excluded the region and caused poverty as well as economic downfall. Nevertheless, Israeli um, essentially continued building on the lands of Palestinians, and the conflict has never been resolved. Despite continued and constant diplomacy, screaming matches, assassinations, and violence, it's still very much a constant issue. In 2013, President Barack Obama gave a speech in Jerusalem and asked the Israelis to put themselves in the shoes of the Palestinians. President Barack Obama said in that speech essentially that if they all could just come to some type of consensus, if they could just come to some type of middle ground, consider yourselves as Israelis in the shoes of Palestinians and how they feel. This is a war. This is a direct crisis that has turned violent over land over so much more than that as well. Apparently, that speech by President Obama was ignored because violence broke out just again. This time, it was more than 2,000 Palestinians dying, including 1,462 citizens. 500 of them were children and 253 were women. That's according to data provided by the United Nations. Shortly after this horrific violence, during a joint meeting in Ireland's legislature, an Irish politician slammed the Israeli ambassador for their policies and treatment towards the Palestinian people. Ambassador, I will say frankly, I'm one of the people who thinks you should be expelled from this country, and I believe that it's to do with the policies of your state. If I was Jewish and had never stepped foot in Israel, I could claim citizenship there tomorrow, but six million people whose origins are in what you now call Israel, who were forced out in 1947 or 48, do not have that right. Isn't that part of the reason why the Palestinians are in dispute with Israelis? Because you deny them the right to return to their homes and to their land and to their villages and that they have a legitimate claim, even under international law, to return, but you deny them that right. Why do you deny them that right? And why do you give that right to other people who have no connection whatsoever with the land, whether you call it Israel or whether you call it Palestine? Why do you continue to seize land, if you're serious about Oslo and the two-state solution, which under that agreement is land designated to be Palestinian land? 500,000 people, most of which has taken place since Oslo. You allow that to happen. Why do you allow it to happen? If you're serious about giving this land to the Palestinians, it's absolutely extraordinary. Are you not just taking us, Ambassador, for idiots? That you can say with a straight face, we're serious about peace, but while we're serious about peace, we're going to seize Palestinian land. And you expect the Palestinians to just sit back and do nothing about that. Now, you know what the Palestinian people have been asking for, far less even than some people would ask for. Because I believe the whole apartheid system should be dismantled. But what they've asked for is to lift the siege of Gaza. Just to lift the siege of Gaza. Let them have an airport. Let them have uh, ports. Let them not be dictated to by a government for whom they do not vote as to what can go in and out of their territories, whether they will have power, whether they will have clean water, whether they will have medicine. What makes you think you're allowed to have nuclear weapons and the fourth biggest army in the world and visit destruction on the, the people of Gaza, but they have no right to defend themselves. They have no territorial sovereignty over could I, that, that land. Would you ask questions, please? Have they How do you justify that? Yeah. All right. How do you justify those uh, double standards? Very lastly, Ambassador. People like uh, Bishop Tutu, Nelson Mandela, and I would certainly describe your state as a uh, apartheid state, with different laws for people depending on their race or religion. For example, at checkpoints, going into the West Bank, there's a channel 
if you're Israeli or European, and as a channel if you're Arab. Just because you're Arab. If you came into Dáil Éireann and they stopped you and said, are you Jewish? Oh no, sir, you can't come in through the same entrance uh, as Irish people or European people because you're Jewish. You would call that racism and apartheid. You practice that with your checkpoints and your military okay. uh, barriers and your apartheid wall. How can you justify How can you justify that? Once again, very stern and influential remarks from an Irish politician in 2014. Just years later, Mr. Richard Boyd called the Israeli slaughter of Palestinian protesters cold-blooded murder. Well, this year, 2023, we are here again. After a deadly attack on Israel by Hamas just this past weekend, we are faced with yet again the same exact crisis that we have been literally fighting for decades. Since 1948. This is not new. This is the same thing. And Israel is not innocent in this war.